Welcome to the Arthroscopy Journal podcast. I'm Dr. Chris Tucker from the Walter Reed National Military Medical Center and founding editor of the podcast. Today, we're discussing the evaluation and management of shoulder instability with associated bone loss. I'm privileged and excited to be joined in this discussion by Dr. Nick Verma, Director of Sports Medicine for Midwest Orthopedics at Rush, Head Team Physician for the Chicago White Sox, and Team Physician for the Chicago Bulls. Dr. Verma is well known internationally for his extensive leadership and educational endeavors and is a recognized thought leader in orthopedic sports medicine. Dr. Verma was an author on the article titled, Evaluation and Management of Glenohumeral Instability with Associated Bone Loss, an Expert Consensus Statement Using the Modified Delphi Technique, which was published in the June 2021 issue of the Arthroscopy Journal. His co-authors include a long list of well-known shoulder surgery experts, too numerous to list here. Nick, congratulations on your work and welcome to the podcast. Chris, thanks for having me, and I really appreciate uh, you doing this and taking the time as well as the journal for picking our work to be highlighted in one of your podcasts. Thanks. This is probably one of the most exciting things I do, and I really love talking to folks like you, uh, especially on topics like this where we really are getting a chance to pick the brain of the world's expert on this topic. So without further ado, let's get started. Before we get into the details of the findings and recommendations of this statement, Can you first just review for us what the Delphi technique is and how it's used to generate these consensus statements? Sure. It's basically a a survey type study where you pick a group of uh, nationally known experts in a given field, in this case, instability, and you come up with a number of different hypotheses, let's call them, about things like management decisions, diagnoses, workup, uh, treatment, et cetera, of a given condition. And then you send out a survey and you ask each of the uh, authors to provide a response in terms of how favorably they agree with a statement. And the idea is if you take, for example, a statement that says everybody over 20% bone loss needs a ladder J procedure, we see how close we can get to consensus. And using that, we can take experts to devise an opinion to help the readers navigate complex situations like decision-making and shoulder instability. That's excellent. Thank you for that quick background. And let's dive right into the conclusions. So ultimately, this process resulted in 31 statements that achieved consensus. And unfortunately, we don't have time to dive into every single one, but I do encourage our listeners to do so offline within their own practice and their academic forums. But I'm hoping today we can highlight several of the big takeaways, especially the ones you think are most important. So first off, I wanted to discuss the evaluation of patients with shoulder instability in general. The panel agreed that a history of multiple dislocations and failed soft tissue surgery should raise one's suspicion of an associated bone deficit. What's been your experience with that in your own practice? So I think this is one of the most important aspects of this study is helping people to identify when they need to be on the lookout for bone loss. Because the reality is, if you don't identify it, you can't treat it. And we do know that it's a causative factor in in predicting failure following soft tissue surgery. So I think that the factors that you just discussed in terms of the number of prior dislocations, the ease at which a dislocation may occur, and prior surgery uh, should always indicate to a clinician that there is a possibility of bone loss. And it should at least prompt you to think about it and consider uh, adding the appropriate diagnostic studies to your workup for that patient. Okay, so we're suspicious. Now, can we discuss the imaging used during evaluation of these instability patients when there's suspected bone loss? Over 95% of the experts agreed MRI is important to evaluate the soft tissues, 
And again, over 95% agreed that CT should be used to quantify the amount of bone loss, specifically on the glenoid, with 100% unanimous agreement that, that the 3D CT provides the most information about the extent of bone loss. Can you just speak to that and your thoughts on obtaining an MRI and a CT on everybody with recurrent instability or everybody in general with instability? So that, that's, in fact, my clinical practice. If you have a first-time dislocation event, you'll get an MRI scan. If there's evidence of a bone uh, injury on the MRI scan, then you'll get a CT scan as well. But anybody who comes into the office with a recurrent instability problem gets both an MRI and a CT scan. And I think that's really the only way we can evaluate the soft tissue, labral pathology, capsular anatomy, identify things like capsular tears, as well as to make sure that we're picking up on bone loss situations. I think that we... Uh, have learned that the axial views on the CT scan are very difficult to evaluate bone loss. The problem with the axial views is you think that they're actually orthogonal to the long axis of the glenoids, but in fact, they're often done in an oblique angulation. So it can really lead to underestimation of the amount of bone loss that's present, and that's been demonstrated by Matt Preventure, among others. I think that the CT scan is critical, and really the best view is, of course, the on-face view where you subtract the humerus and you can look directly at the 3D anatomy of the glenoid and then perform whatever measurement you wish. I think the measurement technique that you use is less important. You can use a surface area-based measurement and you can use a diameter-based measurement. I think it's important to understand that if I use a diameter-based measurement and you use a surface area-based measurement, our measurements will differ uh, and that can be up to 5%. We actually published that in the journal a number of years ago. But as long as you're consistent in your measurement techniques and you're using your algorithm based on your specific measurement techniques, I think you end up in the same place. I think those are fantastic tips. Um, thank you for that insight. So along those lines, it was interesting to me that 95% of the experts agreed that Hill-Sachs lesions are poorly quantified and classified with our current imaging systems. What are you doing currently to evaluate the Hill-Sachs injury, and what do you think we can do to improve in this area? So it's a great question, and it's clearly an uh, unanswered area of shoulder surgery and one that leads to a lot of controversy. The biggest problem with evaluating scoring scales or classification systems for the Hill-Sachs is that they really don't translate into clinical decision-making. So there's really no point in trying to quantify or classify a Hill-Sachs lesion if you can't use that information then in a repeatable manner in order to guide how you're going to treat a patient. And of course, there's no standard on which we can measure the Hill-Sachs. There's depth of the lesion, there's width of the lesion, there's location of the lesion, there's uh, 3D quantification of the actual volume of the humeral head that may be missing. We can look at the actual diameter of the articular cartilage uh, or articular surface that's involved. But we have all of these different measurement techniques. We just don't know how to translate them into clinical decision-making. The closest we've come so far is the on-track, off-track lesion classification, which is helpful, but it's cumbersome. And to be honest, most clinicians in a standard setting don't fully understand it and don't really have the ability to measure and use that in a clinical setting. What I think is important is to follow the, an algorithm that, that I think is relevant to how we treat patients. The first thing you gotta look at is the glenoid side. If the glenoid has a critical defect, then you're already headed down a track of glenoid reconstruction, and probably the Hill-Sachs lesion becomes less relevant. If the glenoid has a, a non-critical lesion, let's call it, so less than 10%, then you've gotta look at the, the Hill-Sachs lesion to decide if you're gonna treat that 
with something like a remplissage at the time of the procedure. My algorithm is basically look at the glenoid first. If the glenoid is subcritical, I'm going to think about an arthroscopic procedure. And then if they have any significant Hillsax lesion, whether it's on track or off track, I think the remplissage has been shown to be effective. I don't think you'd cause any harm by doing a remplissage. And I'll consider a remplissage procedure in a high-level athlete with a minimal glenoid deficiency, even if the lesion calculates as off track, excuse me, as off on track. Yeah, that's a nice insight. I, I'm not going to put you on the spot. Uh, it was interesting to me that the statement without consensus, the glenoid track concept being a reliable method, did not reach consensus. It was close, 77% agreed, but I'm not going to ask you which side of that fence you fell on. Um, but I, I think your insights are fantastic and agreed on the kind of clinical algorithm. And then, at least in my training, um, we always perform an arthroscopic load shift maneuver to assess the stability of the shoulder after the EUA and kind of factor all those dynamic assessments in with the imaging, which is, you know, as we know, is a static uh, measurement. So um, I think, you know, we all have kind of our little bit of algorithms, but I really appreciate your insights. Um, I think that's extremely logical and helpful for those of us practicing. Yeah. And I'm, help I'm happy uh, for you to put me on the spot. I think the issue with the on-track, off-track is it's, it's just a factor in the decision-making. And I think that's one of the real take-home measures with instability is you can't really hang your hat on any one factor. I, I look at it as demand matching, right? So the same procedure uh, that you may indicate for a 19-year-old football player who's looking to play NCAA Division One is a different procedure from the choice you may make for a 32-year-old administrator who likes to play tennis on the weekends. So I think it's important that we look at the entirety of the information that we have and then demand match the procedure for the patient, taking into account all the variables we're talking about. Absolutely. Fantastic tips. Um, okay. So unfortunately, no consensus was reached on how postoperative rehabilitation should be carried out. I think this highlights the accepted need for further research in this area in general, but I think there's some principles that can be used to guide our treatments can you share with us your approach to rehabbing after shoulder instability surgery and what factors you're considering when you're developing that rehab protocol for each individual patient? Sure. I think what we can all agree on is the phases, the general phases that one would use to rehab an athlete following an instability procedure. There's the protective phase when we're trying to make sure that whatever repair we did, whether that's a bone augmentation or a soft tissue repair, has a chance to heal. The second is a range of motion recovery phase where we want to get motion back even though we anticipate that motion recovery is going to be slow following stabilization because of the inherent tightening of the procedure. And then finally, it's a strength and functional uh, ability recovery that allows them to return to sport. Uh, I think that those categories should be individualized based on the patient that you're working with. So for example, what we're looking for in range of motion recovery for an overhead athlete may be di very different than what we're looking for in range of motion recovery for an interior lineman particularly in regards to their ability to get the, the arm overhead and the external rotation that's required to throw with uh, any significant velocity. I think the biggest challenge that we come into is how do we establish return to play criteria? And this is where we haven't really moved the needle in upper extremity surgery compared to lower extremity surgery. In lower extremity surgery, particularly ACL recovery, we now have very thoughtful algorithms about looking for specific movement patterns that may predict re-injury and helping to correct those prior to clearing an athlete to return to sport. I think we do need further work to get to the point where we can look at some functional movement screenings that can help us decide when an athlete is ready to go 
rather than just the basic evaluations uh, that are currently based on time, range of motion, and a gross measurement of strength that's done in a very limited office setting. I think that's excellent tips. Thanks. Um, one of the final essential statements that I want to discuss is the management of patients with glenoid bone loss greater than 20%, for which the panel agreed glenoid bone reconstruction should be performed. You already discussed earlier in the podcast your approach to these subcritical bone loss folks performing arthroscopic procedure for most of them, such as a remplissage. I wanted to pick your brain specifically about these larger glenoid bone loss folks over 20%. What's your bone graft source? Are you in the latter J category, distal tibia allografts, acromion, distal clavicle? I think there's more options now uh, being used. And are you doing these things open, arthroscopic, both? Um, I just kind of wanted to hear your thoughts on that patient. Sure. I think that I'm in multiple camps. And I think it's, again, an individual decision-making based on the patient that you have in front of me. So I kind of think about it in uh, three categories. Number one is, is it a primarily an instability problem or are we seeing larger deficiency that would indicate an instability plus an articular problem? And to me, that's 25 to 30% or more of the glenoids. Uh, and secondly, is is this a primary or a revision type uh, bone procedure? So if it's an instability problem, and I would put that as anywhere between, say, 10 to 25% bone loss on the glenoid side, given the correct patient, that to me is a ladder J procedure where we're primarily trying to solve an instability issue. As they start to get bigger bone loss issues that become articular in nature, I'll move to an osteochondral graft, most commonly the distal tibia. And then there are situations where we end up with uh, revision problems, where patients have failed a technically well-done ladder J that can be converted to a distal tibia or a distal tibia that can be converted to, for example, an iliac crest graft. I am very excited about evolving arthroscopic techniques. I think that the, the arthroscopic ladder J is going to be very, very difficult for surgeons in the United States to adapt, particularly because the volume of surgery that we're doing is, in terms of ladder J transfer is not as high as what's being done in Europe, number one. And number two is our medical legal environment does not allow us to go through the learning curve associated with arthroscopic techniques for ladder J. If you have a, an x-ray nerve or muscutaneous uh, injury in a young athlete, that can be really a, a, a very critical and, and difficult situation to manage. I do think that these techniques that are evolving to you is either iliac crest or some form of a bone graft to the anterior glenoid placed arthroscopically through the rotator interval. I think that's going to be the future of bone loss surgery as we start to become more reproducible with our techniques and systems to help the surgeons do that and get it accomplished in a reproducible manner. Agreed. I think it's an exciting area for advancement, and uh, I enjoy seeing the, the uh, evolving techniques that are being developed. Were there any surprising findings to you that came about from this Delphi process, either things that you would have expected to reach consensus that didn't? or things that surprisingly reached consensus that you didn't really expect to? Yeah, a couple comments that I think were interesting to me. Number one is the, the very strong consensus on the subscat split. I think we all, from the podium, like to pound our chest and say the subscat split is the way to go. We know that there's some imaging data that would suggest that the subscat does undergo some fatty infiltration if we take it down and repair it. But the reality is the clinical results are very favorable whether you take it down or you split it. So I was a little bit surprised that people were as committed to the subscap split being the be-all, end-all in comparison to a subscap takedown. And in complex situations, I still won't hesitate to take down the subscap if I need to, 
in order to protect the neurovascular structures to get the exposure that I need, particularly in some of these larger athletes where retraction on the glenoid side can be very challenging. The other thing that I thought was really interesting was that we didn't harp further on a concept of an open soft tissue procedure versus an arthroscopic soft tissue procedure. Of course, in the United States, we've really moved heavily towards the arthroscopic procedure. And I think admittedly, we sometimes overlook our faults and what are the limitations of arthroscopy. I do think that there's a role in the intermediate high demand patient for an open stabilization. I think there's a difference between a capsular shift and a capsular application. And so I think it would have been helpful to maybe push the expert opinion in terms of are there cases where you do feel that open surgery is better than arthroscopic? Yeah, both interesting areas for discussion. Okay, uh, do you think there's any limitations to this Delphi process that you think readers should take into consideration when surgeons are referring to these recommendations for guidance on managing their patients? Yeah, I think what they have to understand is it's still, at the end of the day, level five evidence. I mean, obviously, we're all providing our opinions based on our vast experience in treating these patients. But for example, you know, this concept of realm massage wouldn't have been included in a Delphi uh, study if it was done 10 or 15 years ago. The on-track, off-track concept wouldn't have been included in a, a Delphi study if it was done several years ago. So I think the idea is that, that everything has to be taken with a grain of salt. And I think what I would go back to is the statement that I made earlier, which is there are a number of factors that we have to consider in managing the patient with instability. And you can't take any one of these recommendations as a singular recommendation to say, that's how I make my decision. But rather, you have to use them uh, as part of your entire decision-making process when you see these patients that have complex situations. I think all extremely insightful points. Do you have any other parting thoughts for us or comments before we conclude? I think we've covered a lot of it. I hope what people take away from this is that the, the decision tree with treating patients with shoulder instability is vast and it continues to evolve over time. My take-home messages would be that bone loss is real and that you need to look for it because the first step in, in addressing it is identifying it correctly. And then again, I, I would go back to this concept that there's no right answer for one singular patient. You have a lot of different variables to look at. You have a lot of different options on the table. And I think you need to have a shared decision-making model with your patients to help identify the best treatment option for the person who's sitting in front of you. Nick, I want to congratulate you and your co-authors again on this work and genuinely thank you for sharing your time and your thoughts with me today. I appreciate you having me and it's a fun topic and I love to discuss it. Thanks again, Chris. Dr. Verma's article titled Evaluation and Management of Glenohumeral Instability with Associated Bone Loss, an Expert Consensus Statement Using the Modified Delphi Technique, can be found in the June 2021 issue of the Arthroscopy Journal which is available online at www.arthroscopyjournal.org. This concludes this edition of the Arthroscopy Journal podcast. The views expressed in the podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the Arthroscopy Association or the Arthroscopy Journal. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next time.